Africa rise and shine Africa zoza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Floods kill at least 100 people in Nigeria and fresh fighting breaks out in South Sudan after peace deal. In economics news, China to impose tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods and in sports news, Kosafa Women's Championships reach the knockout stages. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. With reports of renewed fighting in South Sudan, senior UN officials have warned that there are legitimate questions and concerns about the commitment of the parties to a peace agreement signed less than a week ago. President Sovakir and rebel leader Rahik Machar signed the agreement in the Ethiopian capital. Addis Ababa. The United Nations Secretary-General for Peacekeeping Jean-Pierre Lacroix says within days of the latest signing, there have already been reports of fighting in several regions of the country. Machar spokesperson Gabriel Lampo has confirmed the renewed fighting. James Shimanula reports. The fighting was confirmed by none other than President Salva Kiir himself after receiving a report from his field military commanders. The commanders informed the care that fighting is taking place in Yei River region, southwest of the capital Juba. President Kir personally called Riek Machar. President Kir believes that Machar's fighters are fighting to gain more territory in conflict places. Officials in Somalia have confirmed that fierce clashes took place between Somali regional forces of Jubaland and Al-Shabaab fighters in Gido region in southern Somalia. At least 16 people were killed in the clashes that started on Monday. Residents reported the fighting, saying it lasted for several hours. A senior command of Jubaland forces say 11 Al-Shabaab fighters were killed. Independent sources say a military commander was among those killed in the fighting. The militant group frequently launches attacks in the towns bordering Kenya, targeting Jubaland forces and Kenyan troops. An inquiry is underway into the disappearance of newly printed Liberian banknotes worth nearly 100 million U.S. dollars 
destined for Liberia Central Bank. The initial results from the investigation indicates that the money entered the country at the end of the presidency of Eileen Johnson Salif and in the first few months of current President George Weir's term. Containers filled with cash were taken from the port of Monrovia at the end of March by Central Bank staff but never arrived at their destination. Weir took over in January. The BBC's Jonathan Palele reports. The currencies of Liberia is printed overseas, but the minister is saying that they were printed in about two countries before being taken into Liberia. But what they can speak to is that the money came through the port of Monrovia and the Mi International Airport without the government of the day being informed. This is why they have launched the investigation to know what exactly has happened. Equatorial Guinea is demanding that Brazil hands back more than 16 million U.S. dollars in cash and luxury watches that border officials confiscated from a delegation accompanying the president's son. The vice president of Equatorial Guinea, also the son of President Teodoro Obiang Ngema, Teodoro Ngema Obiang, arrived last Friday on a private plane at Varacopos Airport near Sao Paulo as part of an 11-person delegation. Brazil's federal police found $1.5 million in cash in one bag and watches worth an estimated $15 million in another bag. Equatorial Guinea's foreign ministers denounced the seizure as paltry and unfriendly behavior, demanding that items be returned. In October last year, Obiang Jr. was sentenced in France to a three-year suspended term for money laundering. And finally, South Africa's police minister Becky Kele says the constitutional court's decision to decriminalize the usage of marijuana or dacha in private spaces won't assist with curbing drug abuse in the country. The court ruled on Tuesday that Dacha would be legal for private use in private spaces. Taylor was addressing students at the University of Zululand in KwaZulu-Natal province during his visit there following a stabbing incident that claimed the life of a 20-year-old student at the institution. He said the decriminalization of Dacha will have serious implications on the future of the country. Taylor says he believes the use of Dacha is an entry level to harsher drugs. If the judge has asked me, I would have said no daffa smoking. Yeah. That's what I would say. But the courts, I'm sure they have done it, it will be extended to all of us and all that. Because up to this point, the daffa smoking is an entry point of serious other drugs. Yes. Which means now everybody is on the same path to start drugs. And that's the news airlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Reports from South Sudan say fresh fighting has flared up in the country's southwestern region of Ye. As James Shimangula reports, the fighting automatically violates the new peace agreement that President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Rek Macha signed last week in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Renewed fighting is raging in South Sudan less than a week after President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent, Riek Machar, signed a new peace agreement in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. The fighting was confirmed by none other than President Salva Kiir himself after receiving a report from his field military commanders. The commanders informed Kiir that fighting is taking place in Yei River region, southwest of the capital, Yuma. The fighting prompted President Kiir to pose the following timely question to the people of South Sudan when he addressed them on state radio and television. Why is he still fighting us when we have signed the agreement? President Kiir personally called Riek Machar and asked him a three-word question. What is this? President Kiir believes that Machar's fighters are fighting to gain more territory in conflict places. Is it the acquisition of more territory, but we have signed the agreement? Kir had a final word of caution to Machar. I don't want us to go back to war again. So you talk to your commanders in the field so that they don't attack us again. As if the conversation he had with Machar was not enough, President Salva Kir had this assurance to his long-time political and military opponent. I want to personally assure you that the agreement we have just signed has ended the war. Kir alluded to the suffering that Riek Machar has endured since 2015 when fighting rocked Juba, forcing him to flee first to the Democratic Republic of Congo, then to Sudan, and finally under house arrest in South Africa. You are suffering, provided the primary motivation for this government to pursue peace by all means necessary. I want to appeal to all of you to embrace and accept this peace agreement so that we close the dark chapter on the war. By forgiving each other, we give a chance to peace and prosperity of our people and our nation. That was South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Meanwhile, the fresh fighting and unstoppable attacks have been confirmed by South Sudan military spokesman Major General Lal Roy Kowang. We heard continuous rebel attacks on our defensive positions. That was a very fierce uh, offensive attack. Our forces fought well in self-defense. They were able to repulse the attackers. Riek Machar's field military commander and military spokesman Colonel Gabriel Lampour in a statement issued from an undisclosed location in South Sudan also confirmed renewed fighting and asserted that his fighters resorted to fighting after they were attacked by the Juba government troops. Worried by fresh fighting in South Sudan is Thomas Hushek, United States Ambassador to the country. Fighting going on, hostilities after the signing, a recommitment to the ceasefire. It's time to actually start the work of building peace. That was Thomas Hushek, United States Ambassador to South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
The Nigerian government has declared a state of emergency in four states where floods have wreaked havoc. More than 100 people have died in floods after two major rivers burst their banks and thousands of people had been displaced and vast swathes of farmlands have been destroyed by the floods in central and southern Nigeria. Channel Africa's Colin Zatohengbe reports from Lagos. There's a common saying in Nigeria that water has no enemy. The phrase made a huge sales when the late Afrobeat king Fela Kuti waxed the music album singing of the usefulness of water even when it causes calamities as lots of communities in Nigeria have been grappling with for a while now. Flooding in 21 of the 36 states has kept the government on its toe as it makes concerted effort to rescue people from flood endemic areas pending when the water recedes. The incident has led to a very high magnitude of losses of farmland, houses, domestic animals and household items. Speaking on the step being taken by the federal government, Nigeria's Vice President Yemi Sibajo said the government is holding consultative meetings with key players, especially state governors. He spoke in Makodi, the Benue State capital, after a visit to farming communities which have been displaced by flood. Uh, I've been talking, of course, to His Excellency, the governor of the state. One of the things that the president wants us to do is to find a permanent solution to this perennial flooding in Benue State. And this is why we're engaging, that is why I've been having these meetings with His Excellency, the Governor. This has to be a collaboration between the federal government, the state government, and uh, the uh, local government also. Days after the flooding, President Muhammadu Buhari declared a state of emergency in the four most affected states. The Director General of the National Emergency Management Agency, which has opened five centers where victims will be relocated, Mustafa Meihajia says, Relief materials are being shipped to affected communities and calls for proactive action to prevent severe natural disaster. Those communities that we observed, they are already under serious threat. We are moving them out, as I am speaking to you. Uh, I receive reports on a daily basis. Where the, the, the incidents have commenced, we are already moving relief facility, particularly in Kogi. There is so much rain to the extent that the two dams along uh, river and Asia are spilling water because the dams are already filled up. So it's a natural phenomenon that you cannot do anything about. All you need to do is to be proactive and prepare for possible consequences. From the north central states down to the south, the story is the same. Loss of property, farmlands, over 60 deaths so far, and hundreds of thousands forced to abandon their homes for safe places. Many were not able to salvage their property. Here is the feeling expressed by some of the victims as they wait to be transported to designated IDP camps. Live I occupy everywhere. Destroy our teeth, destroy cassava, rice, everything. It's a problem. We don't know how to solve it. Over 150,000 hectares of rice farm was damaged, destroyed. You can't get anything there now except water. Then we have over 200,000 farmers that have been uh, displaced. And we have uh, over 150,000 animals and goats and sheep that have been drained away down to the mainstream of the river Niger. Many schools, many markets and communities are now underwater. We lost uh, rice, maize, some beans. We just see the waters coming. Before we know, we collect all the rice with us, all our property. While the effort continues, to get people to move to safety points which government has opened to receive victims. 
Vincent Owam of the National Emergency Management Agency says being proactive is one way to avoid the sudden and unimaginable flooding which could happen when Cameroon lets water out of its dam on the Benue River as it did in 2012 which led to lots of deaths. We are saying evacuation should be now because you don't know when they release water. You remember in 2012, we got the information on three days to the day they release water and it was very devastating. So there's a need to be proactive. The rise in the water level has been described as opportunity for Nigeria to plan along with God who provides the rains for a purpose. A professor of climatology at the University of Lagos, Emmanuel Oladipo, says instead of lamenting the over heavy rains, Nigeria should use the opportunity to store up rainwater to promote agricultural activities during the dry seasons. We, we have to just be ready. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me for a country in where in some parts of the country it does not rain for about five to six months. And any time it rains for two or three days, we keep on rushing that our houses have been washed away. In the northern part of Nigeria, for instance, it's a, what we call the outside plain. Most of the lands are fairly flat. So when you have cities that has no drainage, it will lead to trouble. And we create artificial drainage system on this flat land. So when it rains, the water is collected and channeled to a place that it can reuse during the dry season. Rather than complaining that there's no water that dries, dry season and there's too much water down the wet. With more rain still to come and the dams along the rivers Niger and Benue overflowing beyond capacity, the water level may yet equal the 2012 level of 12.84 meters, and that will mean trouble for all the communities along the routes of both the Niger and Benue rivers. The devastation so far recorded with the current flooding incident among farming communities has no doubt placed Nigeria on the list of a possible shortfall in agricultural produces, a prelude to hunger and high cost of food. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohimbe for Channel Africa News. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. The expropriation bill could soon be back in the South African Parliament. The draft legislation was withdrawn from the committee process as Parliament dealt with hearings on whether to amend the Constitution to provide for land expropriation without compensation. Deputy Public Works Minister Jeremy Cronin says the bill will be back in Parliament in the next two months. Joseph Musia reports. After the decision of Parliament to hold public hearings into whether the Constitution needs to be amended, the expropriation bill, which was on the verge of being passed through the committee process, was withdrawn. Deputy Minister Cronin says the new bill will set out the procedure and ensure that land expropriation is done in an administratively just process. He denied, however, that finalizing a new bill before the constitutional review process is complete is jumping the gun. The light amendments we are, we are, we are proposing to introduce into the, the bill 
um, the expropriation bill, the light amendments don't make the assumption that the constitution will either be changed or not changed uh, in this respect. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically appropriate for, for, for either, either possibility. Cronin has admitted, though, that in the current form, the constitution does provide for expropriation without compensation. He said for this reason it would be unrealistic to expect that the problems of land reform will go away with the mere amendment of the constitution. Any approach by government must begin by admitting that we have been timid, weak, confused and and even elements of, of, of serious corruption have crept into the land reform uh, program. So I think that, that we mustn't understand a constitutional amendment or the expropriation bill to be the silver bullet that's going to change the land reform process. I think we need to analyse soberly, but honestly, as government and as the ANC, what have been the weaknesses. He added that the current processes are aimed at ensuring that land reform happens in a responsible manner that addresses the legacy of injustice against black people. At the same time, investors need to understand that this will not be done in a chaotic manner and that there will not be any unlawful land grabs as happened in some of the neighboring countries. The possibility of expropriation without compensation, particularly for land reform, is neither going to be an arbitrary process. It too would need to follow a process of some months, giving notice of intention, providing reasons, making an offer, the, uh, uh, receiving counter-offers. The offer might be nil compensation for the following reasons. Reasons would have to be given. Those affected would have the right to put a counter-proposal and so on. There, there would need to be a process. That report by Joseph Messia in the South African Parliament in Cape Town. Speaker of the South African Parliament, Balegambete, says she is impressed by the openness and willingness by Parliament's multi-party delegation to relate to the democratic process of Cuba, despite believing in a different democratic system. Mbete is accompanied by, among others, the chief whips of the ANC, DA, EFF and IFP on a week-long visit to Cuba. They are holding various bilateral discussions in Cuba. Mercedes Percent has more. The visit to Cuba follows an invitation from the Cuban National Assembly Speaker that was extended to Mbete. Mbete says it was interesting to learn how a one-party state like Cuba can still operate in a democratic way. It has a very democratic process of electing its leadership, although there are not many parties here. Uh, the tendency is to sometimes think that democracy is limited to a multi-party system. Although we know that we believe in our system, which allows uh, different parties to compete. In this one-party system, there is detailed process, very democratic process of electing leadership not based on different political parties, but just different, uh, uh, based on people's own observation of the conduct, the attitudes, the efficiencies, the skills of the various individuals they come, that put themselves forward for purposes of uh, competing for leadership. 
Cubans are appealing to South Africans to assist them to ensure that the United States lifts the economic, political and cultural embargo on the Caribbean island. This is according to ANC Chief Whip Jackson Mtembu, who is part of the delegation. We spoke to a number of Cubans, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Of course, we also spoke to the Women's Federation without exception. All of them have urged us as South Africans to assist them in ensuring that the economic, political and cultural embargo that America has enforced in this country for decades is lifted. That is one area that as South Africa will have to work with other progressive forces in the world because we have seen for ourselves how much this economic blockade has cost to the ordinary people of Cuba. IFP Chief Whip Naren Singh says the plight of the Cubans for the economic embargo by the U.S. to be lifted was one of the notable concerns. I think uh, what also came up quite clearly in our meeting with the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs is the effects that the U.S. blockade is having on Cuba generally, economically and socially. And they've uh, appealed to us as South Africa to use whatever pressure we can at the United Nations to uh, move for the lifting of this blockade because it is seriously impacting on the people of Cuba and obviously having international ramifications as well. EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chibambu has described Cuba as a shining example of a committed socialist system. Despite facing a trade embargo from the United States, Chibambu says the multi-party delegation's engagement on the first day of the five-day visit was inspiring. The most important thing about the visit to Cuba is that the Cubans are recommitting themselves to the socialist reconstruction of society despite the trade embargo by the United States and their friends. So when we met with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they did say that the constitutional reform processes that are going now are not going to distract them from their socialist commitments. That is a great inspiration because we should still give space for socialism in the whole world to exist. And Cuba is a shining example of that phenomenon. DA Chief Whip John Steen Hazen says South Africa can learn lessons from Cuba on how to combat domestic violence and women abuse. Steen Hazen says the delegation's interaction with the Federation of Cuba Women was fruitful in this regard. The steps that they take uh, around domestic violence and around abuse of women and sexual violence against women. Uh, it's a much lower rate here in Cuba than it is back in South Africa. Uh, and the community-based approach that they have, including a multidisciplinary approach where organizations, particularly women's organizations, have partnered with ministries as well as the law enforcement officials to ensure that women who are subjected to any form of abuse, whether it's domestic abuse, uh, whether it's patriarchal abuse, uh, whether it's sexual abuse, have facilities and support. I think that their approach has yielded some very good results, and I think there's a lot that we as South Africans can learn about combating domestic violence and abuse of women particularly. The delegation is also expected to meet South African medical doctor students in Cuba during their visit. That report by a parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent in Parliament. Hello, I'm Dr.
Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us is Professor Masima Karim from the University of Pretoria's Human Resource Management Department. Her research interests include diversity management, specifically topics related to culture, religion, gender and management, identity and intersectionality. Be sure to join Channel Africa at 10 o'clock Central African time on Thursday for this interesting episode of Womanity. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa. Kulta Njoy Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mochemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Countries are not doing enough to end tuberculosis, the world's deadliest infectious disease, by 2030. This was a warning by the World Health Organization this week at the release of the latest global tuberculosis report. The report shows that worldwide TB cases are falling too slowly to meet the target set by WHO's NTB strategy. A deadly disease which usually infects the lungs remains one of the top 10 causes of death worldwide, even though it's fully treatable. Director of the WHO's Global TB Program, Dr. Teresa Kasaiva, is calling for more global action ahead of next week's first ever high-level event on TB at UN headquarters. So the key messages presented were, first of all, that WHO calls for urgent actions and accelerating activities towards ending TB by 2030, as it uh, highlighted in the Sustainable Development Goals and NTB strategy. Now, the second message is, uh, though there is a progress for the last years and uh, about 54 saved millions saved lives since 2000. The progress is too slow, and uh, with such a progress, uh, our ambitious targets will hardly be achieved. So, if we are talking about progress, about progress, it's about two percent per year in decreasing rates of incidence, and up to five percent in decreasing rates of mortality. We need at least two, three times more. A third message is uh, that we need really not only uh, bold commitments, we need uh, very concrete actions and first of all investments in the TB programs and uh, in the research in TB. Because TB programs are chronically underfunded uh, globally, we have right now this year, according to the expert data, about 3.5 billion US dollars gap 
So this uh, means that if not no action taken, uh, the level of uh, tuberculosis spread will increase, which yes. will in turn demand more, more financing. Yes, more financing. And in the case of TB, it's real investments because it's treatable and curable disease. As much we invest today, as less we should invest tomorrow. And we save our uh, uh, population, younger working population. It's especially affect men. And it's a very important message lack of investments and necessity of urgently increasing this investment. Uh, investments and research. Now we are going to the research and, uh, as I mentioned, joint activities towards uh, development, new effective diagnostics, medicines and vaccines are urgently needed if we are serious. If we are overviewing the history of successful elimination of infectious diseases, uh, this story is always linked with the effective vaccines. We need it. Besides uh, insufficient financing, what are other factors that keep from more successful fight against uh, TB? Of course, uh, uh, such well-known uh, but still ignored things as stigma and discrimination are very sensitive and very important, which prevent uh, access to the treatment for many and many patients. Uh, if we look globally, we have 3.6 million gap, uh, we call them missing people, is the difference between the uh, estimated numbers of people who fell ill and uh, the notification rate. So these people either are not informed about the problem and ignore the symptoms, either they uh, uh, were underreported, especially in such uh, countries with big private sector as India, Indonesia. So it's a another problem, and that's why WHO recently, Director General Dr. Tedros, uh, came out with our K-Partner, Stop TB Partnership, and are aimed to be more accountable for their activities, more coordinated, and uh, these are the key conditions of uh, the success and progress. That was Dr. Teresa Kaisaiva, Director of the World Health Organization's Global TB Program, speaking to UN Radio's Anton Uspensky of the UN. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Britain suspends aid payments to Zambia over concerns of alleged fraud and corruption by the government of President Edgar Lungo. Senior UN officials say they are legitimate questions and concerns about the commitment of the parties to a peace agreement signed less than a week ago amid reports of renewed fighting in South Sudan. And an inquiry is underway into the disappearance of newly printed Liberian banknotes worth nearly 100 million US dollars destined for Liberia's central bank. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our pharmacists across South Africa are celebrating Pharmacy Month, which culminates with the commemoration of World Pharmacists Day on September the 25th. 
The Joint Health Awareness Campaign is spearheaded by the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa in partnership with the National Department of Health and the South African Pharmacy Council. The theme for 2018 is Use Medicines Wisely. To speak to us more about this, we are now joined on the line by Lorraine Osman of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa. Lorraine, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you for inviting me, Lulu. I do appreciate it, and, and I do apologize if there's background noise. <laughs> no, no, don't stress about that, Lorraine. Now, firstly, how successful do you think this year's campaign has been, and which aspects of medicine is it addressing? You know what I think the most uh, success... Sorry, I'm going to stand up now. These people are talking too loudly. That's better. Um, I think the most successful part of the campaign is that it brings pharmacists and consumers together just makes them a little bit more of the way aware of the fact that, you know, you're not in this on your own. And medicines can be incredibly confusing, but there is always somebody there who can help you. And so far this year, what we've seen is we've seen a lot of pharmacists in various areas who've made outreach programs in order to reach consumers who might not be coming into the pharmacy. Now, how successful do you think the pharmacy profession has been over the years? That's in improving the health and well-being of the population. I think it depends very much on where their area of expertise lies because remember we're looking at this right from the beginning when medicines are developed before they're even manufactured right through to the part which I think probably concerns you and me as consumers more than anything else and that is where the medicines arrive with the patient. Either the doctor prescribes it or the patient has something that's you know, self-limiting and it'll go away but they need symptom relief and I think that those two aspects, the helping patients to understand their prescription medicines and helping them in the choice of their non-prescription medicines is probably the most important aspect of what they do for consumers. Now, just looking at pharmacists and, uh, you know, having seen that some pharmacists um, have a lot of knowledge with regards to medicines, even before um, prescriptions by doctors, where you find that, uh, you know, patients or um, people in general will go through to a pharmacist before going to a doctor, Um, you know, pharmacists have a very big role to play in the healthcare profession. Yes. And I think, you know, that's quite an important thing from a consumer point of view. And I'm just thinking back to the days, for example, when my children were young and as a mom, you you, you get worried and you want to know, do I need to take my child to the doctor or is there something that I can give which will take the symptoms away and it will eventually get better by itself? Obviously, there are times when you have no choice. You need to go and see a doctor, and the pharmacist will help you. You don't have to make that decision all on your own. You can ask for guidance there. Now, what activities and events have you been engaged in in celebration of Pharmacy Month? 
Well, there, there are two things that I think have been invo- have been important. And as I said, the first is the fact that many pharmacists in their own areas, because obviously sitting in an office, I'm not going to necessarily be out there in touch with all com- uh, consumers, but we, uh, there are many pharmacists who have actually made an effort to go out and speak to, to consumers. And it's usually been in places like clinics where maybe the, the patients don't necessarily get a, a lot of advice about their medicines and it's been in other areas so even just to bring awareness to the patient that they have a right to ask for information and I know for example that the Saturday there are of all things a couple of fun runs that are occurring again it's going to be a branded thing and people are going to draw attention to the fact that the pharmacist is there for them now, let's speak about the downside of, uh, you know, some pharmacists or pharmacies yes. where there's dispensation of uh, scheduled medicines that are not mm. supposed to be um, given to patients only once they have a prescription. And you find that some uh, pharmacies are able to give patients those uh, medicines. What, what happens in that case? How do you work around that um, um, situation? Uh-huh. There are some pharmacists who have done an extra qualification who do actually have a permit in order for them to diagnose and treat some of the primary health care problems that people face. And for them, it is perfectly legitimate. It's not a problem. The pharmacist, however, who is looking for shortcuts and who is not actually deferring to the fact that the law says you need a prescription, those ones are a different matter. And for those, we actually, as as the pharmaceutical society, we would make sure that the pharmacy council, which controls pharmacy, would know about this. And the pharmacy council will investigate complaints that come from consumers because it is not appropriate. There are very good reasons that the medicines need a prescription. It might be that you need a really good diagnosis. It might be that your doctor doesn't want you to carry on with something because they want to, he wants to monitor to your condition. It might be that the condition itself actually needs you to be evaluated on a regular basis. So the Pharmacy Council and the Pharmaceutical Society do not believe it's appropriate for pharmacists to just give out something to the patient without a prescription just because the patient comes to ask for it. Rather, we expect them to explain to the patient why it's important that they need a prescription. And if they don't do that, then we would suggest that the patient does contact the Pharmacy Council. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Lorraine. Bye. That's Lorraine Osman of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa joining us on the line. United Nations Children's Fund says at least 140 million children and more than 7 million pregnant women in 118 countries are at greater risk of illnesses due to vitamin A deficiency. It is the leading cause of child blindness and increases risk of deaths in children under 5. There is hope, however. A group of scientists has come up with a sweet potato variety that is helping bring nutritional benefits to at least 2 million people in 14 Africa. 
African countries affected by the deficiency. Sarah Kimani spoke to Dr. Maria Andrade, a scientist and sweet potato breeder, who is among scientists who help meet the sustainable development goal of ending hunger by 2030. On the sidelines of the African Green Revolution Forum in Kigali, we meet Dr. Maria Andrade, or simply the sweet potato evangelist. I have been called sweet potato evangelist by many journalists because they believe all I do is to preach uh, how good is orange fresh sweet potato uh, for people to eat, especially those females and the children and also the male. Dr. Maria has spent most of her life researching and developing high-yielding varieties of cassava and sweet potatoes. It is in the orange-fleshed sweet potato that her passion lies. Her work on the orange-fleshed sweet potato in Mozambique started in 1998. At the time, 69% of children in Mozambique suffered vitamin A deficiency. Well, the orange flesh is the color of the... When you cut the sweet potato, inside is is the orange color. The deeper is that orange, the more beta-carotene is in it and the more pro-vitamin A is in that sweet potato. Vitamin A helps the body fight infections and prevents night blindness among children. While African farmers are no strangers to sweet potatoes, they have traditionally grown the white and yellow varieties. Through biofortification, the orange-fleshed sweet potato variety was born. We have a breeding program in about 14 countries in Africa an active breeding program, but in countries where we don't have direct intervention, the orange flesh sweet potato has reached there through exchange of planting material. So it's taking up, even some of our material has reached Asia. Dr. Maria first realized that even with the success of introducing the crop in several sub-Saharan African countries, more needed to be done. Advocacy was key if farmers were to begin planting the crop, mothers cooking and feeding it to their families. If you see in Mozambique, when I start working, you come to the district, people are eating sweet potato. They hide because you got to be very, very poor to be eating sweet potato. But today, if you see the government has put uh, the sweet potato as one of the priority crop for the country. Under the Sweet Potato for Profit and Health Initiative, the International Potato Center, together with 26 partner organizations, plan to reach 10 million African households by 2020. Through the introduction of high-yielding varieties to women farmers for production, the women sell the surplus. You need the research in sweet potato. There is a lot of research going on, especially on getting the variety right and also on getting it to the farmers. We are very much concerned with the seed system. In Southern Africa, we have a constraint, which is the drought. It's very unique. All the countries in Southern Africa, they face drought, sometimes flood. So we need to breed sweet potato that can be drought tolerant. In West Africa, they prefer to eat their sweet potato as a staple. So they go for quality. More than 15 years of research culminated in Dr. Maria, as well as two other scientists winning the World Food Prize in 2016. So that's what really makes passion because you are contributing for your continent you are making a difference difference on people because as long as you did agriculture you are an evangelist you are your your work is to really feed the world and nothing is very small for you not to contribute sweet potato is a humble sweet potato is orange face is a humble crop that report by sarah kimani
Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. China is to impose tariffs on 60 billion US dollars worth of imports from the United States following President Donald Trump's decision to levy further tariffs on Chinese goods. Beijing's retaliation follows another batch of US tariffs on 200 billion dollars worth of Chinese goods, the BBC's Andrew Walker reports. This is the second round in an escalating conflict between the world's two biggest economies. The first action was taken by the US over what President Trump calls China's theft of American companies' technology. China retaliated and the US this week announced more tariffs, bringing the total affected to about half what the US buys from China. The Chinese finance ministry said its new action was a response to what it called US unilateralism and trade protectionism. The auctioning of Gupta-linked VR laser services plant and machinery will go ahead as scheduled on Thursday. This comes after the High Court in Johannesburg struck Labour Union NUMSA's urgent application for the road with costs. The company manufactured armoured vehicles for state-owned enterprises Denel. The trade union took to court to interdict VR laser services business rescue practitioners from auctioning the firm's assets. This was in an effort to protect the jobs of its 146 members. NUMSA's General Secretary Irvin Jim says that the business rescue practitioners deliberately inflated the asking price to prevent bidders from buying the armored vehicle manufacturing machinery. For these business rescue practitioners to collaborate with collapsing of the company from where we're sitting is completely out of order because there are monies that were not paid to this company and to now sell assets and to destroy it, it was not acting in the interest of, of those who are owed money out of your laser, in particular workers whose future depended on somebody investing on this business. That's the fight as a union were to take in the interest of defending current capacity not to be destroyed. Meanwhile, the CEO of South Africa's largest bank, NetBank, Mike Brown, is expected to testify at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry this morning in Johannesburg. On Tuesday, senior executive members of APSA and FNB gave detailed accounts of their separate encounters with ruling ANC leaders following the decision to close the accounts of Gupta-owned companies. Naledi Noble reports. Former FNB Group CEO Johan Berger said that the ANC's economic transformation head Ino Godongwane tried to arrange a meeting between him and the ANC's then Secretary General Gwere Mantashe to discuss the closure of bank accounts related to the Gupta family. Chief Executive for Compliance at APSA Yasim Masitela said APSA representatives met with members of the ANC's National Executive Committee but refused to discuss confidential information pertaining to its clients as it went against prescripts and frameworks that regulate the banking industry. She said APSA declined two invitations to meet with the interministerial committee chaired by then Minerals Resources Minister Museben Zizwane due to lack of information about what the meeting would entail. Naledi Ngobo, SABC News, Johannesburg.
Britain says it will support Zimbabwe to get an interim international monetary fund staff program to help the country quickly clear its foreign areas, clearing the 1.8 billion. U.S. dollars in areas to the World Bank and African Development Bank is seen as a major step for Zimbabwe to start accessing foreign credit. The TMT Finance Africa 2018 conference gets underway in London. The conference will feature a panel on broadband leadership which will discuss strategies for African growth. According to Global News and leadership events provider TMT Finance, The transition from voice-centric to data-centric business models for African telecommunications and broadband companies is driving change in the industry and is helping to evolve investing strategies. At this point, the U.S. dollar trades at 10.69 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.82 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 4.13 Brazilian Real. At 67.66 Russian ruble and at 72.54 Indian rupee. 6.86 Chinese yuan, 14.88 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,200. Platinum, $815 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $72.98 a barrel. From an African perspective, my name is Tabiso Lehoku. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, in netball news, the Proteas have lost their second match in the Sanzia Netball Quad Series second round in Tauranga. Co-host the New Zealand Silver fans comfortably beat the Proteas by 61 goals to 37. South Africa's loss to New Zealand comes on the back of a 61-44 loss to Australia in Auckland. New Zealand started like a house on fire, eager to record a win after a disappointing loss to England in their first match at the weekend. Looking a far cry from the team that struggled against the Roses, the Silver fans dominated attack and defense and enjoyed a handy 17-7 lead after the first quarter. Proteas captain Bongim Somi admits that when they tried to keep pace with the fans, the damage was already done and they couldn't make up the difference. It was clear that we probably didn't really stick to the game plan. We, if we could have kept the ball short and sharp and seeing the second option a few times um, when they shot the first one, I think that we lost it a little bit. But then we came back and um, we had a few chances to try and close the gap. And again, it's just about discipline. I think that we still really need to work on um, going forward and in preparation for next year's World Cup. The Hoos then saved their best for last. They continued to control every aspect of the game, while South Africa had to deal with a penalty count of 83. Silver fans captain Laura Langman says they are very happy with the way they played. Yeah, I think um, although you've got a game plan sometimes, intuition needs to come um, as well, so you have to have a balance. And I think um, I felt like in times we gave ourselves a licence to play how we like to play, um, and it was very nice. 
The Proteas will next take on England Roses on Sunday in Melbourne, while New Zealand will clash against Australia on the same day. Football news, Zambia will play Cameroon in the semi-final of the 2018 Kosafa Women's Championship currently underway in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. This after, Shibolo Bolo crushed Mozambique 3-0 in the final group match on Tuesday afternoon at Wolfson Stadium. Despite the victory, Zambia head coach Beauty Muamba says they could have still done more. Well, I'm happy with the results because uh, I feel it's important uh, to get uh, the maximum points. Though I feel we could have done better than that because I've uh, created a lot of chances, but uh, we didn't take uh, us Zambia defeated Cameroon 1 0 in their early group. Coach Muamba feels the pressure will slightly be on Cameroon in the semi final clash. Well, what uh, this simply means is that uh, we're in a tough group, that's why we are going to meet again. But uh, I feel it will be less pressure on our side because uh, Cameroon are a big team. So we, will, we have also become a big team after beating them. But I think we have uh, less pressure. And finally, South African promising wheelchair tennis player Donald Rampardi eased into the quarterfinal round of the Sardinia Open in Italy on Tuesday with a straight sets win over Boriva Ivano of Italy. A 25-year-old Rampardi, who is playing in his second tournament since his classification as a quad player earlier this year, had little problems making his way into the last eight at a tennis club, Aguero dismissing 55-year-old Italian 6th love 6-1. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa floods kill at least 100 people in Nigeria and fresh fighting breaks out in South Sudan after peace deal. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, tweet us at RiseShineAfrica, or WhatsApp on 277-63-003327. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Lerato Sabina with a song titled Lerato. Free from this child.